Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, and this week we are talking about the Volta a España, which is now the only Grand Tour running, which is great and kind of weird uh, after having multiple races running at the same time. Uh, apologies, I didn't get an episode out earlier this week to talk about the conclusion of the Giro d'Italia, where Theo Gegenhardt beat Jai Hindley after going into uh, the final st- stage 21 time trial tied on time. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, it's, it, that's the, the bad thing about all these races being packed together is I found that so that race was so, it, it was so interesting. The final few stages, I was so excited about it. And then I just completely moved on and forgot about it. And I bet I'm not the only one. And that's probably a problem for the sport, which is why they shouldn't overlap grand tours. It doesn't give it any room to breathe. It's like, you know, you need to de- decant them like a, like a wine. So you can, you can get all the notes and flavors after, after the race is over. Uh, I did put out a newsletter uh, the day after kind of breaking down a few of the key points. You can sign up for that newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly option and a paid daily option. It's a great way to support the podcast. If you are listening to the podcast, you would love the newsletter. No, no question. And if you want to support the podcast in another way, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash btppod. Uh, and thank you for everyone who has already done that. It's It warms my heart every time I get it. it the fact that someone would go out of their way to buy me a coffee that I don't know, is it's, it's very cool. So keep doing that if you enjoy the content. Uh, so I just finished watching stage... Oh boy, stage 10 of the Volta España. So we're going to talk about that first just because it's fresh in my mind. It was billed as a sprint stage through a region of Spain that I'd frankly never heard of, but was one of the most beautiful regions I'd ever seen in the world. It was incredible. Let me try to find this. The town is Suanches. Suanches. I don't know how to say that in Spanish. Um, it, it's on, it's up on the Atlantic coast. It, it borders the Basque region, I believe. Let me, let me make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah. Border borders the Basque region. It's the Cantabria province, uh, in Northern Spain. It was incredible. I, I mean, this is now maybe taking the lead as the, uh, the, the location for the first beyond the Peloton member summit, uh, retreat riding retreat. Uh, it was, it was incredible. As soon as COVID is over. I will be lobbying hard for a trip to that region. Uh, I would, I mean, I would, I would recommend just like rewatching some of the stage just to see how beautiful the region was. It was ridiculous, but this was billed as a sprint stage. I went in back and rewatched the last time the Volta finished at this in this town, and the finish is way too hard for sprinters. It was won by Paolo Bettini, who he was kind of a sprinter, but. His name was the cricket because he was so small and powerful. He, he jumped his his jump was like that of a cricket, with uh, Damiano Cunego in third and David Rebellion Rebellion in second, and they're, they're both climbers. So it was immediately apparent to me that this was going to be a bit of a GC day, or at least the GC riders were going to be sprinting between each other, and that's exactly what happened. So and Primoz Roglic won the stage. He is. I mean, I think he's always been known as being strong. And he came onto the scene as like a really good time trial. That's like a good steady state power writer. And then it's like, oh, he can climb. That's impressive. And it's like, well, he's just strong. Like 
you know, he doesn't really have any of the, the, the tactical nous of the other writers. So no one really, I feel like people didn't really take him seriously, but he's like emerging as like a mini, like Sagan sport version, like a miniature version of Peter Sagan, who can also ride for the GC and time trial. It's, it's really impressive. Any one of these, he got beat by Dan Martin on stage, uh, this stage three uphill finish, but it almost looked like he was marking Carapaz and wasn't even really trying to win that stage. But stage one, he won. Stage eight, he won, which was an uphill finish. And stage 10, he's now won. And today was the most impressive, I thought. It was, you know, there was, it was a lot of like, you know, not sprinters, but it was a lot of riders in there, a lot of teams, a lot of RG Barge. He got squeezed at one point with about three, 400 meters to go, maybe, and really recovered well. Um, Gillian, Gillian Montan. Guillaume Matan attacked, uh, which I thought in my, I was just watching the race, thinking like, God, Roglic should attack right here. Matan went. I thought that was the move. Carapaz then jumped to pull him back. And I thought once again, like, oh man, these guys are up here and Roglic isn't, he just got squeezed to the back. He's missing out. But he, he, he came right around uh, Andrea Baggiolo on quick step, who kind of like gave him the perfect lead out, just launched him up the uh, right side of the road. And won the stage easily, and got a and got a time, a time gap between when he, they passed Carapaz. It looked like he was a stone in a creek, and like a stone in a river, and they were the water going around him. It was looked like he stopped. So he lost three seconds by Ruglich got a three seconds gap gap on him, got a ten second time bonus. So now they're tied on time atop the GC, which is crazy. I can't ever remember two Grand Tours in a season where first and second were tied on time you know, more than five days into the race. This is incredibly rare, but incredibly exciting. So, and yeah, he, he won that stage like dominantly. So for a guy that came into the sport late, this is, it's super impressive. I've, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I did, I got into a few conversations with a few uh, different listeners and readers over the past few days after Mike Woods won stage seven. He, uh, if you didn't see the stage, he sat on a lot just smart uh it just refused to work and then attacked with like 1.6k to go to win this to win the stage and there was a lot of talk of like well he didn't deserve to win because he wasn't working um but it's kind of like that's how cycling works that's how you the guy who does the least amount of work usually wins uh and there was just a lot of talk of like I, people basically wishing he was better like thinking he kind of underperforms per his talent but i i would contend that they're missing He's, I think, the best rider to ever come into the sport as late as he did, and especially to be a North American rider going to Europe. That never works. Like, I think his first season in Europe was at 30 years old. Nobody, nobody is successful after coming over that late. So, taking that into account, and you know, uh, someone did say like, "Oh, well, Lawrence Tendam came into the sport late, and Primoz Roglic." But Lawrence Tendam started racing at 16, which is 10 years younger than Mike Woods was when he started racing. And even Primoz Roglic, I think, started racing at 22, 21 or 22. And those are big years, 22 to 26. Those are huge developmental years. And Roglic was racing in Europe from the gun. I mean, that, it's a different sport over there. People don't understand how much different the racing is, how much deeper the fields are, how much faster people are. You know, the fastest guy in a U.S. race, clone that guy, 
and make 150 of them. And that's the European race. It's just the depth and then also the road construction. I think that's a that's something people look over that you're on these tiny roads. It's like racing with 150 really strong riders on a bike path is it's really tough. And it takes a lot of time to adapt to that. And a lot of people just never truly adapt to it. Um, Travis McCabe was probably one of the best riders in the U S for years. And he, he's retiring at the end of this year, he's been racing for Israel startup nation. And I believe his best result is he made the early break at Ghent Movelgem. I mean, which is impressive. That's if that was my the best result of my career, I, I'd be pumped and I would tell people about it nonstop. You wouldn't get me to shut up about it. But that's pretty wild to think. The best result of his career is a non-result. It's just getting in an early breakaway and almost no one noticing. So that's, and he, I mean, that's a U.S. national champion. So it shows you just how much harder the racing is over there. So the guys like Roglic, who when they started racing, they were already in Europe. That's a huge advantage to Mike Woods. What Mike Woods is doing is incredible. I don't think people appreciate it enough, just what he's done going over to Europe that late. And I think he's only won six pro races over there, but he has two grand tour stage wins, which is really impressive. Uh, he has some weak spots to his riding. Uh, he descends incredibly poorly, uh, probably limits his ability to win a lot of races, but I think he's done just incredibly well with with what uh the hand he's has been dealt he's obviously he's a sub four minute miler so he's extremely talented he's a big engine extremely talented guy i'm also trying to get him on the podcast on the upcoming rest day so no negative things about mike woods on this podcast for the moment and one thing on the mike woods win is i i think it's it's uh teams completely underutilize advanced stats and when i say that i don't mean like I talk a lot about Watts. I talk about a lot about Watts per kilo and raw Watts in the newsletter. It's, it's a very useful measurement of, you know, how hard people are riding. You can compare, you know, how fast are these guys going compared to Chris Froome uh, a few years ago or Lance Armstrong. It's all, I find it all very interesting. That's not totally what I mean about advanced stats. I think cycling, we get too obsessed with like context with, just numbers out of context, random raw power numbers out of context. Like these guys did 400 watts for the 10 minutes in the middle of the race. It's like, well, that's cool. But the the thing I think is underutilized is, well, okay, so you have a breakaway. Mike Woods wins out of the breakaway. How much time did he spend on the front compared to everyone else? Did he spend, was he doing 5% of the work and everyone else was doing 30%? Did he do 1%? You know, what are your chances of winning doing 1% versus 5% versus 10%? You know, stats that actually reflect how people ride in the race, which I would draw, that, that's kind of the parallel to, it's like, okay, Steph Curry's shooting 40% from three. That's an output number. But the thing that's really changed basketball is, well, he's, he's on, you know, four to five possessions standing like 15 feet away from the nearest teammate and that's opening up spacing on the floor that's the thing that i think cycling hasn't quite realized they can use yet not just using like rider biometric data but actual like on the road uh i guess i was saying output the power would be more like input data where the output external data would just be like how are they riding what are they doing how many teammates does a guy have on the front does that help or hurt if we go back through the last 30 years of racing and we use GPS, or just since they started using GP onboard GPSs, which would be 
know, maybe the last 10 years. And can we, you know, maybe you don't even need their consent. You could just crawl all these repositories of information like uh, Strava using information like that. You could probably triangulate some pretty interesting trends and say, well, actually, we don't need to put a team on the front. Just everyone in the sport tells themselves they need to do this. And they've been doing it because they've watched other teams do it. But it actually doesn't help. And we can do this instead. I think there's huge improve. I think teams could really improve their, their performance uh, by just focusing on that and looking into that a little bit. And I'll try to dive into, I might try to mock up a few models with just information I can grab publicly this, uh, this off season. And I'll do a few podcasts about that and maybe a few editions of the newsletter as well. I also think there's a complete misunderstanding of riders. A team's just sign riders because they have big names or they think they might be good, but they need someone on staff really looking into, well, wait a second, you can, you have this guy for, you know, $1.5 million a year, but there's 20 guys making $100,000 a year that are 95% as good. Just get a few of them and you can replace this $1.5 million rider in the aggregate for $450,000. I feel like that is completely, it's not even underutilized. It's just not utilized at all. Just not signing the biggest named writer because you can, um, but actually investigating like how can we stretch a dollar as far as possible, uh, which you would think would be important to the sport where money is always an issue. But these teams just spend money like it's it's not a problem at all. It's really shocking to me how much they just toss around money and figure, oh yeah, like we'll always have a sponsor come on to pay for this multi million dollar roster, as opposed to actually trying to build a cheap, effective roster. A team that does this, that has done this well, I shouldn't say it's not utilized, is Bor Hansgro. Peter Sagan makes a lot of money, probably like five to six million dollars a year. But other than that, they used to just be the Peter Sagan show. He came to that team. It was a nothing team. And he came to that team because he could bring four or five riders, including his brother, uh, a whole staff, like a whole entourage of staff, and they were willing to absorb it and specialize the bike sponsor was willing to pay for it because he's such a good marketing tool for them. But then around them, slowly, quietly, over time, they've just added these guys like Pascal Ackerman, um, Felix Grobcharter, who's having a great Welta. Uh, for, I would guess, not that salary data is not public, which makes us hard to really analyze. I would guess not a lot of money. I would bet that team is running on a shoestring budget. We even think Max Shackman is a, he's a one day classics contender. And he can ride GC in the tours. And these double duty guys are super important. You're getting two for the price of one, essentially. Same with Emmanuel Bookman. I bet those guys are not getting paid tons of money. And Bora has been able to assemble this incredibly strong team that racks up stage wins at every Grand Tour, will always compete in in one-day classics, and they'll get big wins. And they don't have to just lean on Sagan. I think they're probably the best model of what I'm talking about. This mentality that I'm saying doesn't exist does exist on Bora, and they're probably one of the only teams doing that. A team that is not doing this is Israel Cycling or Startup Nation, who I think like most like the majority of the roster is going to be above 30 and making way too much money next year, and they're going to have a terrible year because of it. Um, I'll, I'll dig into that a little bit more in the off season, but just keep an eye out for them to be a real stinker of a team with a bloated payroll next year. Um, so 
Now let's talk about the next three stages of the Vuelta. These are three really hard stages, three really important stages. This is where the race is going to be made and won or lost. Uh, the last week is quote-unquote easy, but it is these typical... Uh, we saw this on stage seven. They're not mountain stages, but they're not sprint stages, and they can get really... You know, if you don't have a team to just like, you know, sit on the front and just really put out a lot of watts, like you maybe would have at the Tour, the Vuelta, the teams aren't quite as strong because they've used all their... You know, teams just use their best their best options of the tour. So it's like the leftover teammates or guys are tired at the Vuelta. These rate it can really get crazy in the final week. Uh, we saw this on stage. Oh, I forget which stage it was. Maybe stage eighteen of the Vuelta last year, where Movistar attacked on kind of a rolling, windy day, and Roglic was cra- he crashed and was dropped. It didn't work, but it could have worked. Um, something like that. So watch out for that in the final week. But as far as like set piece, tough mountain stages, the next three, two days are big. And then the time trial on on Tuesday is big as well. So tomorrow is stage 11. We finish on Alta de la Forpana, Forapano, something like that. I have no idea. But it's it's not a super hard climb. It's 18K long, which is really long at 5.7%. But they're gonna they're gonna climb this thing so fast. I mean, and this is perfect for Roglic. We could, you know, analyze this from 15, 16 different ways, but this is gonna be the Primo's Roglic show. Uh just a, a mild gradient climb like that. Carapaz can can try, but he won't be able to get rid of him on there, especially since Carapaz's Enios team, which is usually really strong, has looked terrible. Chris Froome is out there doing what he can, but he is just uh, it's debatable even if he should you got to think there's someone else on that roster who could have done a better a better job of as a with as a teammate here it's it's uh the team really leaves something to be desired and that's really going to hurt him on climbs like tomorrow where he can't jack the pace up super high and drop everyone he wouldn't be able to do that anyway but the team really could put people in trouble and as well as ambushing Yumbo on those medium hard stages in the final week. A strong team would help him with that. Sunday is the Angerlu. Angerlu. Alto de la Angerlu. Uh, it is really, it's probably the hardest climb in pro cycling. I mean, the climb itself, quote unquote climb, is 6K at an average of 14%. But bolted onto that, the pre climb is 5K at 7.5%, which is hard. Like, if, we, if you just went out, if we were all doing a Beyond the Peloton group ride today and we'd finish on a 5K climb at 7.5%, that'd be really hard. And that's just to get to the bottom of the Angerloo, which is in an average of 14%. I can't quite explain how steep that is. That'd be like if you went on a bike ride, the steepest thing you hit that you thought, oh, wow, I might fall off my bike there for one second, that's at 14%. And then it's going to average that for... 6k so like four miles uh it's the race could really blow up here if Roglic would is gonna lose the race i'd say it's on the angrelu uh actually the daniel free from the cycling podcast is uh, working in the wealth as a tv journalist and he talked to a few riders who didn't know what this climb was which is crazy to me but this actually happened at the tour the Col de la Lose. a lot of the ef riders didn't know it was hard the morning of so it shows you it's like you think these teams are dialed in and they're really not. Like it's a fact that 
a writer wouldn't know what the angrily is or how hard it is or that they're writing up it in a few days is kind of mind-boggling. But uh, the only thing, I mean, so Rogledge is like a negative 200 in the betting markets right now. I'm convinced he's going to win this thing. But that is so, that's expensive. That's that you got to bet two hundred dollars to win a hundred dollars. I mean, and we saw the Tour de France, like nothing's guaranteed. So, Carapaz was a last time I checked was like a plus two hundred. That would be appealing to me, it, but I just don't see the problem. Is the Angrelu would be the place where Roglic would lose the race, but this climb really suits him. I mean, we saw in the tour these steep, you the Col de la Lowe's. I mean, he's steep climbs. So he can really, really spin. He spins such a high, high gear that these steep climbs almost don't phase him. It's just like he's time trialing up 14 to 15%. And he might not win. I mean, we did see Mijal Angel Lopez drop him on the Lowe's at the tour, stage 17 of the tour. Carapaz could maybe do something similar, but I mean, the angle is not that high, 1,500 meters. That's only 5,000 feet. So Carapaz being from Ecuador, you know, maybe higher altitude would help him, but he's not even really going to get the assistance of high altitude. I think the Tourmalet was going to be the highest point, and that stage got called off because France wouldn't let them into the country because of COVID. So I just think Roglic is going to, I think maybe he, he might not win the stage, but he's certainly going to do well. He's not going to lose the race on this. I also hate that. Um, <laughs> I was journalists always say, you're not going to win the race on this stage, but you could lose it. It's like, well, yeah, everyone but the winner is technically losing the race every day. <laughs> like, and then the winner only technically wins it on the final day. But there are points where like, we could just say the, the race is won. Uh, stage 13, where Roglic could win the race. Uh, it's a 33-kilometer time trial. There's a steep... I believe it's about, it's like a 2K steep, steep, steep climb at the finish. 1.8K at, oh my God, 14%. So that is really steep. But as we just said, the conventional wisdom is, well, this steep pitch is going to keep Carapaz from losing a bunch of time here. Well, wait, like, wait, let's press pause on that take for a second. I've heard that. That's the conventional wisdom. But if we look at every steep finish of this Welta, Roglic has beat Carapaz. So what does that tell you? Roglic is probably better at the steep finishes. Also, if we go back to the Planche de, Le Planche de la Belfield at the Tour, stage 20, that time trial. Remember that time trial. Roglic had a bad day. Roglic rode the first 40 minutes, probably at threshold, before he even got to the climb. Carapaz rode as easy as possible to the base of the climb to try to win the KOM jersey by beating Pogachar up the climb. Carapaz beat Roglic by eight, only eight seconds on that climb. And that was Roglic having a bad, quote-unquote, bad day and riding the first hard part, first 40 minutes of the race as hard as he could while Carapaz slow-pedaled. So, yeah, that's not going to help him. Like, Carapaz is not going to be faster than Roglic on that steep section. And if we go back to stage 21 of the 2019 Giro d'Italia, which Carapaz won the race overall, um, sealing the win on that stage. Roglic had another quote-unquote bad day, and it was a 17-kilometer time trial, and Roglic still took 46 seconds out of Carapaz, who had a pretty good TT that day. So if we extrapolate the seconds, that's 2.7 seconds per kilometer. If we extrapolate that out, 
to from 17 to 33k that is a minute and a half and that's a pretty conservative estimate to what he would take i think i'll take around two two and a half minutes from carapaz so it's not clear to me i think roglic wins tomorrow i think he's top three on sunday and i think he wins stage 13 on tuesday these are the three biggest gc days left so it's not clear to me how carapaz could win this you could you could always have an implosion Roglic doesn't really implode, though. I feel like it gets a bad name for that. Um, he, he can fade in the last few days of a Grand Tour, but remember this Vuelta, instead of 21 stages, is only 18. So after that TT, there's 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. There's only five stages left. There's one mountain stage. So even if he does start to fade, there's only one other mountain stage where Carapaz could really take time. And is he going to take two, two and a half minutes? I don't think so. Uh, so I think this is pretty much wrapped up. It's over. It's been a super exciting race, though. Uh, lots, an interesting thing to think about is the first week was just like they had to cut off the first four stages because they were supposed to be in the Netherlands. And they just went like right into hard mountain stages. Or, I mean, not like medium mountain stages with steep finishes. And it was fun. It was exciting. Every day has been exciting except for two sprint stages, which is awesome. It's, it's, I, I've seen a lot of pushback from like experienced journalists like oh this is like a candy it's like a sugar high it's like eating candy for dinner you're gonna be sick of this by the third week it's like it's this race has been great so far like what are you talking about like god forbid we let the sport be exciting to people like that oh then that's the end of it oh i think this has been a great race it's been a great advertisement for the sport for people who maybe aren't haven't been interested in the past it's every day you pop it on there's either something exciting going on or beautiful scenery. They are not touring Spain as that Italy like literally toured. They went from the tip of Sicily to the French border in the north, which is like very cool, like intellectually, like that's interesting. Um, and you're stimulating the south, the southern part of the country, which has been does not have a deep cycling culture, has been looked over by the Giro in the past, but there's a lot, there was a lot of junk in that Giro, just like a lot of boring stages, because you're getting from A to B, point A to B, and you feel it. I felt it. It, it drug on the race. But this Vuelta, they're just like, they're not going south of Madrid. I mean, there, and there are exciting stages down in Granada, around Granada, um, in the Sierra Nevada. So there's fun stuff down there, but just, it's not an indictment on any part of either Italy or Spain, but just, I think, getting from A to B, you can get boring stages. If they're trying to go from Granada up to the Basque Country, you've got to go through some really boring parts of Spain to get up there. And that's what they used to do. They used to, like, get on the highway, like, literally ride on the highway. And you could tell everyone was on vacation and they were hungover. So what they've been able to do, and it's just like, we're just popping around northern Spain, which is very uh, beautiful, very wet, very steep climbs, a lot of mountains, everything's mountainous. So even like a quote-unquote sprint stage like today, we get a GC battle. It's it's amazing. So yeah, nothing but good things to say about this Vuelta. And it's only 18 stages, so everything gets a little more compact. Every day is a little bit more important. And every bit of time is is more important. Where today, originally it was ruled a sprint stage. So Roglic's time gap to Carapaz was negated. But by the end, they rightfully overturned that. So he did get a three-second gap by the finish. And so he got that plus the 10-second time bonus. So he was 13 seconds down at the beginning of the stage. Now he's tied on time with Carapaz. And like that 13 seconds is much more important than it would normally be because we have fewer stages. 
So something to think about as well as you're watching this. But no, it's been a fantastic race. We're getting two incredibly good riders. Oh, and we have, I haven't mentioned this, Dan Martin, the Irishman, is in third at 25 seconds back. I don't think he's going to win. Dan usually has a bad day, but he usually loses time in the first week when there's all these uh, boring sprint stages. They took that out. Dan's sitting pretty now because his least favorite terrain is gone. So that's kind of an interesting little subtext, subplot too. But he will lose a lot of time in that TT. He cannot time trial, and Roglic will maybe put three, three and a half minutes into him. Uh, I believe Enric Mass, or who's in fourth? No, Hugh Carthy, 51 seconds back on EF. He's a you know, very good climber, very bad time trialist. He will lose loads of time. I'd say Enric Moss in fifth place, uh, 154 back. He could leapfrog. I think he's going to leapfrog both Martin and Carthy and be the third. He's going to finish third overall. Uh, that would be my prediction. Uh, but let's talk about the, the end of the Giro really quick before we finish the episode. The Giro was a little boring. As I said, they, there's a lot of A to B, A to B stages where it's like, wow, we are burning kilometers to get up to the north of the country. But once we got up there, there was some pretty exciting mountain stages. Uh, stage 18 over the Stelvio, Rowan Dennis paced tailgating heart of that with Jai Henley on their wheel. They set the fastest time of all time on the Stelvio, which is crazy. It's crazy to think about. And it like, I was just, the takeaway from the Giro was it was these no-name riders. I mean, I say that like, no, we all know who tailgating heart is, but he's not a star rider. He's a domestique. Jai Henley was pretty much a no-name rider, unless you're into local Australian racing like me. You would probably never heard of him. And they were freaking flying, like Chris Froome at his best flying, like Bianco Valo on stage 15. Jai Henley, I think, did like 6.4 watts per kilo for 37 minutes. And tomorrow's finishing climb at the Vuelta is 18, for the last 18 minutes in 2014, Chris Froome did 6.3 watts per kilo, no, 6.4 watts per kilo. So it's like twice as long as that effort. And they're doing they're riding as fast as Chris Froome was at his peak. And these are just nobodies. So that was like shocking to see. Jai Henley was pacing that, by the way. So I, that was just the takeaway for me. Or like Rowan Dennis, I mean, very good time trialist, great engine, never really been a climber, but just oh, I'll set the two minutes, it's like two and a half minutes faster than uh, Nibali's time in 2017 when he went over that leading the race. Or he wasn't leading the race, but he rode it the fastest that day. And then chased Mika Landa down like a falcon on the descent into town for the finish. But just two, two and a half minutes. Like, Nibali wasn't any slower in this Euro than he was when he was winning and he was just getting dropped. So that was kind of odd to me. I mean, you could say that's, I, it, I'm very hesitant to say like that's doping related, but it could just be maybe these new guys are just better. I don't know. I've, I need to investigate that this offseason a little bit to figure out what's going on there. But, that also maybe plays back into the point where I was saying teams don't do enough rider analysis to be like, wait, Jai Hindley is just as good as, well, let's say like Richie Port, who got third at the tour. Like, let's just have him be our team leader. Like, he's good. I think a lot of these teams just like hold these guys back. And if the Giro wasn't so compressed in between the tour and the Vuelta, Gegenhart and Hindley wouldn't even be leading. We would never know they were that fast. So that's a possible answer to that, where 
just the schedule compression and like Garrett Thomas crashing out on stage three has woken us up to just how many fast people there are in pro cycling. And maybe the fastest guy isn't being featured by the team because of some arbitrary decision made by a director who's like, well, Garrett Thomas is our leader because he's famous. No one cares about Teo Gegenhart, so yeah, work for this guy. And we never find out Teo Gegenhart is an amazing rider, which he was an amazing rider for for those last five stages. And the thing that's so impressive to me about his win is A is Enio's team won seven stages out of 21, which is crazy. But B, they just were so patient. Like Wilco Kelderman, I looked at like after stage 14, the time trial, he was in like Teo Gegenhardt was in like 12th place, three and a half minutes back behind Wilco Kelderman. No, behind Zhao, Zhao, our, our lovely boy Zhao. Uh, but then Kelderman's just a few seconds behind him. And I was just thinking, God, I, I can't believe it, but Wilco Kelderman's going to win a Grand Tour. But they just waited and waited and waited and counted on him cracking. And he cracked and they took advantage of it. It was a really interesting style of racing from Ineos, who was like using their strength for good versus the evil of just choking any excitement out of the race by setting pace. Dave Brailsford, the director, the, the head honcho over there, it was a little annoying where he's just like, yo, this is our new style. We don't race defensively anymore. It's like, well, dude, you didn't race defensively because you couldn't, because you didn't have the race lead and you had to take time. So uh, yeah, you're, it's got a little bit of revisionist history there. Like you, you couldn't ride defensively because you had to take a ton of time, but it produced a very exciting race. Uh, and then Teo was, was very good in the final time trial, like 400, mid 400 watts for the whole time, which shows me like that. It, I mean, it was short. It was like a 17 to 18 minute effort. That shows me he's like, he could be a legit GC rider in the future with, with that type of climbing and time trialing performance. The downside is he's never going to get another opportunity on Enios. The team is way too stacked. I went through it in the newsletter, but I mean, I'll just do it off the top of my head here. They, they brought in Danny Martinez. They brought in Adam Yates, who I'm sure they're paying both of those guys tons of money, probably 2 million pounds a year to be GC leaders. They have Garrett Thomas still. They have Richard Carapaz, who probably would have won that Giro if he would have raced it, it was, as was originally scheduled. And they have Egan Bernal, the Tour de France winner in 2019. And then not to mention Filippo Ghana, and Rowan and Dennis both emerged as possible GC projects for them in the future. And those two riders actually fit the profile of GC of like Tour de France winners on that team better than anyone else I just mentioned. I mean, it sounds preposterous that they would choose them over Richard Carapaz or Egan Bernal. But the way to consistently win Grand Tours is to be the strongest in the time trialists and just hold on in the climbs. It's, people don't remember. They won't remember the tour like this, but that's how Tadej Bogachar won. He just held on on the climbs. He attacked one day, but that was just to make up time he lost from a flat tire in the crosswinds. But he really won that race in the time trial. Uh, and those guys can consistently race like that. So I don't think he gets another Grand Tour start. I mean, not a start, but he doesn't get a chance to lead a Grand Tour if he stays at Enios. He doesn't have a contract with him for next year. I would bet that those negotiations got a lot spicier in the last few days of that race. He's probably making, he probably makes pretty good money on that team, maybe like upper six figures. But now, I mean, he could go to Trek Segafredo, who has nobody. Richie Port's gone. He's going back to Ineos. Vincenzo Nibali is not a Grand Tour winner anymore. 
as we just saw, he could probably get paid two, two and a half million dollars a year from them. So he, no one is as good after they leave Ineos as they were when they were there. Um, I don't know why that is. We could speculate all day about why that is. Uh, he probably wouldn't be as good, but I think he could, he could do very well financially and professionally just having the spotlight at a team like Trek. So Teo, if you're listening, go to Trek Sigafredo. Trek, if you're listening, I'll call Teo for you. Um, just just uh, send me an email at beyondthepeltonpod at gmail.com. So, yeah, let's just uh, enjoy. It's a very exciting weekend of racing coming up. I will be I'm covering on the daily newsletter, beyondthepeloton.substack.com. And I'm thinking I'm launching like a beta live chat feature for all subscribers to that newsletter. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get it out this weekend, but that is, it will definitely be humming by, uh, by next season. But it, we might do a little teaser of that this weekend so we can all talk to each other about what's going on in the race while it's going on, which I think would be really exciting. So uh, keep an eye out for that. But yeah, just enjoy the weekend of racing. It's going to be awesome. I expect Roglic to wreck house and probably wrap the Vuelta up this weekend, but it's the Vuelta, so we still can't relax until next weekend in Madrid, which I expect that race, that stage to be canceled. It will finish on Saturday, which is the way Grand Tours should finish. That's a subject for another podcast. All right, well, have a great weekend, and thank you for listening.